You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name's Dean. We've been going through the Bible this whole past year, just after New Year's, uh, just a few weeks after we started the book of Genesis. We've been working our way all the way through, and today is actually five months until Christmas, uh, so we're over halfway. Isn't that weird? Isn't that crazy? We're, we're over halfway. We're rolling through, and in the Gospel of Mark this morning. It's good to gather this morning. Being a part of a local church, it's an important rhythm in your spiritual life, a good kind of habit, a good routine, uh, one that God has prescribed for us uh, that allows us to uh, do really what he, what he called us to do, and that's to come together, to hear God's word, to sing together, to pray together, all the things that matters for God's people and the institution that he has designed, the local church. So it's good to be together today. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump in. Father, we are thankful for your word, that we lift up all the churches in our city as they gather today, as we know we're not the only ones doing this, that the gospel will fill every church room in this community. We pray that that be true. We ask you to keep the enemy out of this church, out of this place, out of our city, and that people will respond to the good news of who you are, that they will understand that Jesus is the Messiah that has been sent to us and for us, and that salvation only comes through him. We're thankful that you provided the way, that in your grace and in your love, you provided the way back to you to forgive sinners like us, to make us your people all through Christ. We are thankful for your word. And we go into it now asking you open our minds and open our eyes, open our hearts, our ears, all to receive your good news. And that's all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week we were in Matthew. We're just chronologically going through. And Matthew focuses on Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. That was the big theme last week, that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And now we're in the book of Mark, the shortest book of the Gospels. And Mark focuses on more on Jesus as the one who ushers in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the one who brings about the kingdom of God through his life, through his teaching, but especially as Mark will really focus in on through his death and resurrection. That yes, he fulfills the Old Testament hopes and promises, but in doing so, he's bringing in a long expected, we could say new era, a new age of the reign of God forever in this world. See, Mark records less of Jesus' teachings, it's only 16 chapters, than any other Gospels, but proportionally, he covers more miracles than any other of the Gospels. See, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom that Israel had long awaited for. See, what they had longed for, Christ now has ushered, has inaugurated in. And at the gate, Mark 1, chapter chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, it shows us the good news that Jesus came as the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament, just like Matthew did. That's significant for the readers at the time to understand and to know that everything they had been taught their entire lives, everything they had been longing for, was now coming together and understood in this person named Jesus. So out of the gate, he says, the beginning, this is chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Like he's not hesitating. He's not pulling any punches. He goes, here it is. This is the beginning of the good news I'm going to tell you. This Jesus actually is the son of God. The gospel begins, Mark's gospel, with a statement about Jesus's identity. The first thing out of the gate we see is the deity of Christ. That's so significant. 
the deity of Christ. Jesus is the son of God. Not only in that he is the one called by God to rule the earth as God's representative, but also that he himself is God. Let's reinforce the next two verses. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, again, he's looking back to help them see forward. See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. That's talking about John the Baptist, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. But what is his cry? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. See, we're prepared the way of the Lord from Isaiah 40, originally referred to Yahweh. God is now being applied by Mark to Jesus. In other words, he's declaring to them, Jesus is God, which would have been mind-blowing to them at the time. He's saying this one here, he actually is the one referred to over and over again in the scriptures. We also see the Trinity, also very significant. In Mark chapter one, verses nine through 11, we see Jesus get baptized, and we're told in the text that the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven affirmed Jesus' sonship. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. We see here all three persons of the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And just kind of a helpful intro to the Trinity. And I'm sure we'll do future equip classes on the Trinity and really dig in more on this important doctrine. We can say the Father orchestrates salvation. The one who calls, who, who brings us about. The Son, Jesus, accomplishes salvation. He died for our sins. The Spirit applies salvation, regenerates us, makes us new. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all one God, one God in three persons. So Mark chapter one, verse 15 hits the ground running, where it quotes Jesus where he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This idea of the kingdom is gonna be a major focus of the book of Mark. He's saying it's fulfilled, all that's promised has been answered, and now the kingdom of God has come near, like God with us, it actually is here in front of us. So what's the response to that? He says, repent, believe the good news. Uh, the best kingdom of God, there's a lot of def definitions out there. I wanted to give us maybe the most like, understandable one possible, uh, but also that, that had depth to it. Uh, from the Gospel Coalition, I appreciated their kingdom of God definition. The kingdom of God is the rule of God manifested in the long-awaited restoration of his people. They were longing for generations to be ultimately restored to God, and indeed the whole world. It's for Jew and Gentile, in which God would reign and rule over glad submission of all people. The reign of God over the people of God. The reign of God over the people of God helps us understand ultimately the kingdom of God. So the appropriate response Jesus said to the kingdom is repent and believe the good news. See, repentance and faith are two sides of the same Christian coin. See, repentance means I turn away from sin, I turn away from self-reliance to God instead, and belief means I acknowledge God's alone power to save, that he's the only one who can repair what was actually broken. Like, I can't restore my relationship with God on my own because I have sin that must be dealt with, sin that must be punished, but God in his grace and mercy has given us the way to repair the relationship. 
and the fact that Jesus died a death that I deserve for my sins. And Mark moves really fast. Like, you think I talk fast? Read the book of Mark. It fl- flies through. It were just quick little snapshots, like here, here, here. And all, most scholars, most evangelical scholars believe uh, that Mark's primary source for his gospel was Peter. Peter the disciple. So Mark and Peter are sitting down, and Peter's telling him the stories of Jesus and what Jesus has come to do, what he experienced. So think of them just sitting down together, and Peter's going 100 miles an hour going, and then he did this, and then he did that, and I saw this in my own eyes, and, and the other gospel writers corroborated as true. So Peter, the primary source here, and the first half of the book, he really kind of locks in on the miracles of Jesus, on the story of kind of validating Jesus and who he was, and then the second half just focuses on one week. Like an entire half of his book is about Jesus' death and resurrection. You see, the kingdom would come by a cross. See, the first half of the gospel focuses on Jesus as the Messiah, as the son of God, who had these amazing powers that we can't explain outside of God himself. And then the second half is that Jesus would go to a cross. And that'd be very confusing to people, because before that, he's performing powerful actions that demonstrate his authority as the Messiah. And it's like, wait a second, how could the Messiah eventually die? That would make no sense to them. See, Mark tells the people over and over again in this gospel that Jesus is going to do far beyond what they ever could have imagined. He's going to flip their understanding upside down. He tells that the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. They were amazed. Think of their mouth dropping, their eyes getting big. And amazement is a major theme in Mark's gospel. You'll say they were amazed, they were astonished. Suddenly this happened. Immediately, this took place. The people are going, this is blowing our minds. We see that he has authority over nature. In chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, he calms the storm. Who can do these kind of things? Jesus has been demonstrating his messianic authority in teaching and healing, in exorcism over demon possession, and also in forgiving sins. And then he will do what they call his first nature miracle, demonstrating he even has power over the wind and the waves. I mean, us being in hurricane country here. I mean, imagine one who could just walk out in front of people and calm the storm just by the power of his words. All this is leading up, validating who he is, his power, his authority, his sonship, his messianic power. Then we could say the theme climaxes in Mark chapter 8, verse 29 where it all comes together and kicks us off in a new direction, as Peter declares in a conversation that Jesus actually is the Messiah. And at that point, for the first time, Jesus predicts his death, his coming suffering to his disciples. Here's how the story goes. But you, he asks them, this is Jesus talking, who do you say that I am? There's chatter about who I am. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, like, you're the Messiah. Like, we know, we have seen. Again, Mark's learning from Peter. Peter's telling him the story. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Why? Because his time had not come yet to fulfill his purpose, which is to come and die for the people. Then he began to teach them it was necessary for the Son of Man, who he referred to himself, to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and scribes be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
saying things like, that, that can't be true. We're not going to let that happen to you because Peter's not getting the whole story. This is what was promised. This is what the Messiah should be expected to do. That throughout the Old Testament, we saw that there'd be a servant who would suffer, who would shed his blood for the people. That all the sacrifices would point to this. And Peter's going, no, that, this is not you. He's forgetting the whole story. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Now, he's not being overly harsh to Peter here. He's actually saying nothing is going to stop God's plan for his people through my suffering. Because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Don't think about me right now and my fate. Think about what God's going to accomplish for the sins of the world. So with Peter's confession in chapter 8, we, we reach the center point of Mark's gospel. And up to this point, the primary emphasis, you could say, has been on only Jesus' messianic authority, that's been the focus, but from this point on, the emphasis is going to lock in on the road to the cross, that the rest of Mark is going to be completely cross-focused, with some stories along the way, but all leading towards Jesus going to the cross. And Mark's point is that Jesus is indeed, yes, the mighty Messiah and Son of God, and this is important, but he fulfills the messianic role in a unique and surprising way by suffering as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of God's people. He said in Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Mark's account of the crucifixion, remember the kingdom of God, king, kingdom, is filled with royal imagery, showing a king not defined by a crown of this world. Look at what happens here. Mark 15, they dressed him in a purple robe twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Listen to this mocking. Hail, king of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head and stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. So here is Jesus given a purple robe, a crown that's of thorns on his head, and even as he hangs on the cross, the sign above his head says, King of the Jews. Now what's happening here is Mark is not trying to gain our sympathy. He's showing through irony that the one mocked as king actually truly is king. But he's a different kind of king. The onlookers would ridicule him and say, save yourself, come down from the cross not understanding that the way that this kingdom would come about was through a cross. We see this, another royal statement, verse 39, when the centurion, who would have been of the Roman authority, who was standing opposite of him, saw the way he breathed his last when Jesus died, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So even the royals are understanding this, the royal army that he really is the one. See, Jesus reveals his kingship not by coming down from the cross to save himself, but by staying on the cross to save others. This is the kind of king that we have that flips our understanding of kingship and royalty and power and might and rule on its head. The cross is the greatest display of Christ's reign fueled by his love. So he's king on the cross, forgiving sin, defeating evil, and establishing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. See, the cross is not a failure. It was the whole point. 
But in their eyes, they're going, ah, they said he was the king of the Jews. Let's put a purple robe on him. Let's put a crown on him. Let's kind of fake worship. Let's mock him. And the response is, this actually is the entire point. Jeremy Treat, who's a pastor in California and has done some really good writing on the kingdom, he says it is the apex, the cross, is the apex of his kingdom mission. The splendor of God's royal power shines brightest through the sacrificial death of the Son of God. He adds the cross is the crowning achievement of Christ's kingdom mission. You see, the kingdom and the cross are held together by Christ. Israel's Messiah who brings God's reign on earth through his atoning death and sacrifice. Did you know the kingdom is the ultimate goal of the cross and the cross is the means by which thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we could say that the paradox of God's reign through Christ crucified, it definitely appears foolish to human logic. I tell you regularly here, we're never gonna make Christianity cool enough, appealing enough, make sense enough. Now, it should make sense in the fact that when we talk to people about Jesus, that it's understandable. But in terms of it appeasing the rationale and logic of the world, we're never going to be able to do that because we're even told in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. He's supposed to be the king and he dies and and he's mocked and he seems powerless and he didn't even come down when he could have. But see, for us, through faith, it is the very power and wisdom of God. See, the kingdom is, is a space defined, yes, physically, but also relationally and theologically. One theologian said, John Howard Yoder, he was right to say the kingdom of God is also a social, visible order. It's not a hidden one. You see, the primary boundaries of the kingdom in the present are found in the church. Like, you ever heard that expression, give him the keys to the kingdom? You ever heard that expression before? The church is the one that now has the keys to the kingdom. While the church is not the kingdom in its fullness, we still await for the ultimate kingdom to come when Christ returns. The church, we could say, is a manifestation of the kingdom. It's an outpost, you could say, of the kingdom. Jesus called it a a city shining on a hill, a light for all to see. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, a king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. And strange we are indeed. And we are the people who have given our lives to someone we believe was dead and came back to life three days later. What the world sees as foolish, we see as the power of God. We should be a peculiar people. First Peter calls us strangers, aliens, sojourners, living in a world that's not our own, where it actually should feel like we're in a different universe. I went to Wyoming recently for a pastor, so it was some pastors at a, at a friend's place out there where we stayed. My wife and I had a chance to go out there, and when I got home, a few friends who knew I was out there, they said, they said how was it? Just like, how was your vacation? I was like, good, you know, it was fun, we had a great time. And they said, well, how was Wyoming? Like, just in general, I said, you know, the best, the thing that kept coming to my mind the most was it felt like I was in a different country. When you're from Florida, I mean, outside of Disney, there's like three options, beach, trees, and swamp, right? I mean, we love Florida. That's not a knock, it's just it's what it is, right? It's basically, the scene, that, that's kind of the scenery here. If you love the beach, best place, you know, best place in America, uh, but you know, I'm not really a beach guy because I don't like sand in my toes and that kind of thing. But, you know, beach, you know, it's beach, 
and its trees and its swamps and maybe some lakes, Tom Brady winning Super Bowls, you know, things like that. That's kind of Florida. And out in Wyoming, it was just so different, just the scenery and just the culture. And the, I really felt like I needed a passport when I got out there. I've been outside of going away for college for four years and a little bit of time in seminary in Kentucky. I lived in Florida my entire life. So it's just so different. And for us as Christians, the reality is as kingdom people, we should see ourselves as living and it should feel for us like we're living in a different country. Like we're living in a world that we can't ultimately relate to. Now, do we want to be able to relate to people? Absolutely. Do we want to be present in the world and engaged at work in relationships and, and connecting with people? Do we want to be relatable? Yes. And I hope we are. We have a very relatable savior. We should be relatable people. But we should feel this kind of tension that this is an unrecognizable place to us once we give our lives to Christ and be part of his kingdom. See, the kingdoms of this world, compare this to the cross and the logic of the world. When you study history, the kingdoms of this world were all built by force, by might, through power. The kingdom of God is founded on grace. Jesus not using his power for himself, but giving his life as a ransom for many. God's kingdom is established and forever shaped by the cross. So when you hear maybe someone say or read a book where he talks about a cross-shaped kingdom, that is the reality of where we are. The cross creates a community of ransomed people living under the reign of God. Jesus purchased our ransom, brought us into himself, into life with him, into his kingdom, and now we are these people who live under God's reign. You actually can call us, and it's appropriate to call us kingdom people that that is who we are. So the cross-shaped kingdom provides a framework for a life of devotion to the king. Like we now live under the kingship of Christ, under his rule. It's his rule and his reign. Because through the cross, not only are our sins forgiven, but we're also made into something. We're made into followers of Christ. Like we now look to him under his, him as the king. We're not just saved from something, our sins, we're saved to something, which is life with God, citizens of a new world. Jesus, it goes like this in Mark, calling the crowd along with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I mean, how different is that from the motivational Monday messaging of Instagram? I mean, how different? If you wanna follow me, deny yourself, take up a cross, follow me. Now crosses for us today can just be you know, a necklace, it can be a design, it can be a tattoo, it can be, it's just sorta of, sort of part of our, our design and just part of our, just kind of part of our culture, the, the idea of the symbol of a cross. It can not even mean that much spiritually significant to somebody. It might be in someone's house who's barely a Christian. They might even have a cross somewhere. Well, in this culture at this time, a cross only meant one thing, and that was death. So when you hear someone say, pick up your cross and follow me, it'd be equivalent of somebody saying, take your lethal injection and follow me. It's like, excuse me? This is a foolish kingdom indeed. So if whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and by your life, it means the values of this world. Like your life as you want to live it. 
your personal autonomy. Whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. And there's a literal component to that too. Like where is your ultimate loyalty? Who do you ultimately live for? For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What, what does it gain someone to win an argument but lose your Christian testimony? Like, like what does it benefit someone to get revenge and be proven right but compromise your relationship with Christ? Here, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. And anytime, if, if you're new here, I just want you to know, any time that I'm talking about this kind of stuff, I'm talking to myself first. Because just like you, I, I'm a kingdom work in process. And, and so I'm asking myself as I'm writing this message, I'm going, if Jesus, the king of kings, went to a cross, why in the world would I think I'm exempt from one? Now, my cross is not for the sins of the world. I'm ineligible for that death, so are you, because I have my own sins to account for. No one in this room can die for anyone else's sins, because you have your own sins that must be dealt with. Thankfully, Jesus died for our sins, died a death that we deserved. But why would I think I'm exempt from picking up a cross if Jesus, the king, went to the cross? What happens in our community far too often in our city, in Tallahassee, and, I, and I'm not exempt from this either, is people want a kingdom, but they don't want a cross. And people want a kingdom, and they don't want a king. So by kingdom, they just kind of want maybe the benefits of Christianity, or maybe just sort of the generic values you can kind of pick maybe on your mind and choose. This kind of cultural, nominal Christianity where you believe in the Lord and you know, maybe you know, put up a nativity scene on your mantle five months from now, but it doesn't really mean that much. It's a, it's a kingdom you want, but no cross. A kingdom with no king. And the king that we still want, we're, we're pro-king as long as I'm the king, as long as you're the king. You know, king of your own life. And there's a reason why spiritual life in Tallahassee is about this deep. There's a reason why we have 847.78 churches in our town. That's a fact, I think. But we don't see kingdom impact happen very often. That's why we live in a town where everybody claims a church, but you just don't go that often. It's why we're living in a town where everybody owns a Bible, but we don't read it very often. Live in a town where people believe maybe in heaven and hell, but don't talk about how you get there. Yeah, it's king without a kingdom. Excuse me, kingdom without a king. It's a kingdom without a cross. And to myself first and to everyone else, I'm saying, this is a type of Christianity that the Bible doesn't recognize. 
that the suffering of Christ should lead us to say, yes, you, like you are the one. I'm gonna pick up my cross and follow you. And I know it's easy to say when we live in like, we have air conditioning and we're gonna go to lunch after church and it's just kind of have all the things we want and you're gonna just kind of sit around and watch the Olympics tonight and you know, it's one thing to go, let's pick up our cross and follow Jesus. It's like, yeah, what's for dinner? I, I get that that can be sort of naive. But maybe we're the ones who have drifted from the idea of what it actually means to to follow Christ. Like following Jesus interferes with your life. Like it does. And, And we can't be someone who wants enough of Jesus to be associated with, but not so much where it personally inconveniences us. And that's a bad way to grow a church because we don't wanna hear that sort of thing. But are we gonna follow the Jesus of an American culture that we created or a Jesus of the Bible where actually the decisions we make in our lives, the priorities we place, are grounded in the fact that we are in a kingdom under a king who went to a cross? Like it should matter. Like, like the fact that what we believe to be true about Jesus should fuel every decision we make in our lives. Every decision. But it's easy in cultural Christianity to just have it as a category. You know, it's like work, family, you know, hobbies, and you know, and then over here it's like faith. Then you kind of go into the faith box when something bad happens. You go into the faith box because maybe, you know, we need to sort of like let our kids think that we're kind of into this thing. But it's just sort of a box rather than it being our entire lives. And the reality is, and you have to be careful what we wish for, because when we say, Jesus, like, I, I want to pick up my cross and follow you, like, that, that means something. Like, what, what's going to come with that? And in my conversations all the time with people who don't know Jesus or who kind of sort of do or just sort of like in the murky middle kind of thing that I have those conversations all the time, people I grew up with, still connected to, it's the best part about being a hometown pastor is I get to be around, I'm just around people all the time that I'm not just like this random pastor, like i grew up with them. It's just really great. But it can be hard too because you're just like, come on, like get it. You know? But the number one reason I see as to what keeps people from going all in with Jesus is they know what it's going to mean. It's going to affect that relationship. It's going to affect these choices. It's going to affect the areas of my life that I kind of like the way they are and just kind of figure out how to keep myself guilt-free and doing these kind of things and this type of situation or give a disclaimer about me and this guy and you know all, all the it's, and it's and it's going it really is as simple as kingdom yes king and cross no so what's the answer is it to guilt people and shame them and tell them they're terrible absolutely not it's to give more of Jesus and to go he is worth it he really is the king Like, he is better than anything this world has to offer. This world, this world's like juicy fruit gum. It's the best taste ever for like 3.7 seconds. Then it's gone. Need a new piece. Need a new piece. Need a new piece. It's like drinking lemonade when you're really hot and sweaty. Take that drink and you're like, remember the the lemonade sound? (sighs) What happens 10 seconds later? You're thirsty. You're looking for water. This world doesn't work and it wasn't designed to. 
So what would it look like if we were people who say yes to Jesus, but not Jesus, just the idea of him or an association with him, but Jesus, the king who went to a cross for us. We see that Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, so like upper level Jewish brass here. And this next line is just, I just fixated on this when I was reading this. Was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God. He was anticipating the coming kingdom because he knew very well Jewish scripture and knew that one day God promised he was gonna usher all these things in. And we see that he came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. It's like maybe this guy all of a sudden is secretly going, I've been looking for a kingdom and here he is. Pilate was surprised he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he'd already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen and then laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of, Jesus, of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. Don't be mistaken. Mark knows what he's doing. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and his focus in his book is the kingdom of God ushered in by Christ. And here he is giving us this detail, which matters, the burial of Christ matters in the story. He died, he was buried to be resurrected, he needed to die. And here he is going, this guy, and he mentions that little tiny part, who was looking for the kingdom. And what Mark is subtly just kind of putting in there for you is he found it. And then all of his understandings were confirmed three days later as all four gospel writers celebrate and help us understand the tomb was rolled away and that Jesus walked out of there conquering death. See, when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he announced that the kingdom of God had arrived. But because of ongoing rebellion and rejection of Jesus and his rule, you know, kingdom, no king, the kingdom still awaits its final consumption and that'll be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. So that's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. But we anticipate that to happen, for Jesus to return. Theologians call it already not yet. Like we already have the kingdom now, and, and the reality of our salvation for those who know Jesus is now, but the ultimate fulfillment of that is yet to come. So Mark Strauss, who's a, who wrote a great commentary on Mark, said that Mark's gospel is a reminder that the coming of Jesus changed everything, inaugurated a kingdom. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he has defeated Satan, sin, and death for all time. That's why Christians today from, can, can, can actually say death from 1 Corinthians 15, where is your sting? Because death ultimately does not have the final word or the final authority. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated and will be consummated when the Son of Man returns in glory for his church. So the invitation to enter that kingdom stands upon those who respond in faith. Like you are the one. Like I'm repenting of my self-reliance, I'm repenting of my sin, and I'm believing that you actually are the one you claim to be. And then now as kingdom people, it changes everything. Because we're a people of a kingdom, worshiping a resurrected Christ who 
is king and who had a cross. Will we be people who don't just give a hat tip to the king, but actually worship him with our lives? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word, for Mark's testimony about who you are and what you've done. Lord, we acknowledge, I know I acknowledge first that so often I want a kingdom and the benefits of all the things of the kingdom without a king and without a cross. Lord, I know that's a Christianity that is not recognized by the Bible, so I repent of that and believe the good news that it is not I but Christ, that you are the one and true king. Lord, so I ask that you dethrone all of us, as painful as that might be, and that we will be people who repent of the thoughts that we can have the parts of you we like and get rid of the parts that might inconvenience us. That's, that's not kingdom people. Lord, we know that these stories in the gospels are a love story of you coming to redeem a people for yourself. For God so loved the world that you gave your only son. So Lord, I ask, we'll respond to that by not settling for the lesser loves of this world but responding to the name that is above all names, that loves us unconditionally, loves us no matter what, that loves us even when we sin. This world does not love us back. This world is quick to point out our mistakes. You are quick to show us mercy and compassion and grace. Let us respond to that by submitting our lives to you. We remember together the king on the cross who was mocked, who did not come down to vindicate himself, but stayed on that cross to ransom a people. We worship you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.